From Ground Zero Radio, this is Democracy Now! Ron has been uh, a story and, uh, you know, a known devil in India, Argentina, England, you name it, and finally came home to roost here. And, of course, they were at the center of, of the deregulation scam in California. Today, we'll talk about Enron with investigative journalist Greg Palast. Then, outrage Argentines take to the streets and occupy banks to protest an austerity budget. And is another world possible? We go to the closing plenary session of the World Social Forum in Porto Alegre. Among those who've spoken over these few days in Brazil, Noam Chomsky. Stay with us. Welcome to Democracy Now!'s War and Peace Report, broadcasting just blocks from where the towers of the World Trade Center once stood. I'm Amy Goodman. In testimony before a congressional panel yesterday, a member of Enron's board of directors said the company's collapse was the result of a systemic and pervasive attempt to inflate profits and hide losses, not of a few rogue employees breaking company rules. The testimony from William C. Powers, Jr., dean of the University of Texas Law School and author of a scathing report about the energy trading company released over the weekend, will make it even more difficult for Enron's former leaders to deflect blame for the company's stunning collapse to lower-level employees or its auditor, Arthur Anderson. Powers testified before a House Financial Services subcommittee after Lay refused to appear before a Senate panel. Lay then resigned from Enron's board, closing out his involvement in a company he helped to form in 1986. The Powers report concluded that Lay and former chief executive Jeffrey Skilling were largely responsible for a fundamentally flawed decision to let Andrew S. Fastow, the company's chief financial officer at the time, set up and run Enron-funded partnerships that made him tens of millions of dollars and allowed Enron to hide huge losses and debts. Fastow received at least $30 million from running partnerships, a fact that was never reported to shareholders. One of his colleagues, Michael Copper, got at least $10 million from an initial investment of $125,000. According to Powers, others received up to $1 million or more for doing virtually nothing. We'll have more on this later in the program. President Bush yesterday sent Congress a $2.13 trillion spending request. At the top of Bush's wish list is a request for the biggest jump in military spending in 20 years. Bush said the military was his administration's number one priority. But Democrats are questioning where the money would come from and at what expense. This comes as a report by the government's general accounting office says in the past year, the U.S. Defense Department has lost track of military equipment worth 10 times its annual budget. Meanwhile, the Senate Budget Committee chair, Kent Conrad, Democrat of North Dakota, likened the administration's budget accounting to tactics employed 
by the bankrupt Enron Corporation. He said, like Enron, the president's budget fails to acknowledge massive debt obligations that in the government's case will come due when baby booners retire. He contended the administration's spending plan would take $2 trillion out of the Social Security and Medicare trust funds over the next decade to pay for Bush's tax cuts and cover shortfalls in spending on other government programs. A delegation from the Bush administration is in Colombia for meetings with the country's president as Washington seeks to further expand military aid to the country by $98 million. The Bush administration says the money will be used to protect an oil pipeline. Bush proposed the aid to further train and arm Colombian soldiers. The delegation is being led by Undersecretary of State Mark Grossman. The last time he visited Colombia was a week before September 11th. At that time, top U.S. officials said they ruled out U.S. backing for so-called counterinsurgency warfare in Colombia. Confronted with growing threats from Washington, Iraq has offered to have a dialogue without preconditions with U.N. Secretary General Kofi Annan. This, according to the United Nations, a statement from the world body said that Annan will check his calendar. The offer was relayed to Annan by Amr Musa, the secretary general of the Arab League, who'd been to Baghdad. There was no immediate reaction from Washington, where President Bush proclaimed Iraq a partner in an axis of evil with North Korea and Iran in his State of the Union address last week. Meanwhile, U.S. and British warplanes bombed northern Iraq yesterday. These attacks occur almost every week with little, if any, attention in the corporate media. Former Mayor Rudolph Giuliani could become a Nobel Peace Prize winner by the end of the year. This according to a report released yesterday by the Associated Press. Giuliani's been tapped for the award for his efforts following September 11th. Word of Giuliani's nomination came exactly three years to the day after police officers shot an unarmed African immigrant, Amadou Diallo, 41 times outside his Bronx apartment. The murder sparked months of protests against Mayor Giuliani, whose agenda is believed to have encouraged police lawlessness and racial profiling. As for other nominees for this year's Nobel Peace Prize, two additional names include George W. Bush and British Prime Minister Tony Blair. Both were nominated by a member of the Norwegian parliament who cited them for what he called their decisive action against terrorism. Now we're standing on the front line of democracy. Turn the light on darkness, let the people see. For the seventh generation, export the greed, joy to the children. Save the water and a tree. Who are these short-sighted, faceless, ignorant? Let us say a prayer for them. Mandrill, the Wilson brothers from Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, battle in Seattle, here on Democracy Now!'s War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we said in the news headlines, a former board of directors member of Enron accused the company of systemic and pervasive attempts to inflate profits and hide losses. 
Well, yesterday, Harvey Pitt, the chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission, told the House panel investigating Enron he cannot guarantee that other Enrons, companies with massive accounting irregularities, won't emerge. Within hours after Ken Lay's testimony was to have begun, leaders of the Senate Commerce Committee and its Subcommittee on Consumer Affairs said they intend to subpoena Lay to testify next Tuesday. The chair of the Commerce Committee also said the Justice Department should appoint an outside special prosecutor to handle the case because Enron is a major contributor to President George Bush's campaign and had ties to an array of administration officials. He cited, among others, Attorney General John Ashcroft's decision to recuse himself because of Enron campaign contributions. The Justice Department released a statement saying it, quote, sees no reason to appoint a special counsel to investigate the Enron matter because no conflict of interest exists. In the House, Congressman Richard Baker, Republican of Louisiana, chair of the subcommittee that heard testimony yesterday, said the panel also would seek authority to subpoena Ken Lay. The British tabloid The Mirror calls him the liar. British Prime Minister Tony Blair says his reports contain not one shred of evidence. Well, today we're going to hear from Gregory Pallast. His undercover investigations of corruption within the Blair government for Britain's Observer have made him New Labour's public enemy number one. He's an internationally recognized expert on the control of corporate power, working with labor unions and consumer groups in the United States, South America, and Europe. Greg Palace was named BBC's Guerrilla News Network's Reporter of the Year this year for his work on the World Bank and the IMF. He came into our firehouse studio yesterday afternoon before heading back to London, and I spoke to him about Enron and its connections to Argentina. We've been looking at this for a long, long time. I mean, the American press and the American public has been taken by surprise by Enron, but Enron has been uh, a story and, uh, you know, a known devil in India, Argentina, England, you name it, and finally came home to roost here. And, of course, they were at the center of, of the deregulation scam in California. So what the new report is a wonderful whitewash, the new report coming out from the board of Enron, because it says, oh, that Ken Lay, he really should have been watching this very closely, um, but he wasn't, uh, he wasn't watching what his minions were doing. Well, that's, that's real bull, because what it's saying is that's his criminal defense. He's saying he was a bad boy, he should have been watching. In other words, he didn't know. And the idea that he didn't know is completely insane, because... Um, even well, actually good work done by Rebecca Smith of um, of the Wall Street Journal showing that uh, Lay was in key meetings where they came up with these schemes. And also it'd be impossible to the, the entire corporation was uh, was built on a scam. And explain what the scam was. Okay, the, There are two scams. OK, because first of all, let's go over what they did to the stockholders. They set up off the books corporations in which they pretended that they that there was an independent owner for 3% of, the, of these offshore companies named Jedi and, and Chewbacca, all these Star Wars characters. And, you know, they had 3,000 subsidiaries. It's hard to even find names for them. And uh, what they did was is that they pretended that they were independent owners. But basically these other subsidiaries and hidden interests made sure that Enron had 100% control of it. By having the whole point of not having 100% control was to get the stuff off their balance sheets, they can pretend that, that they had assets and no losses, 
And in fact, there were massive losses hidden in these companies. What they had done is they sold off real assets and said the assets would be replaced by Enron stock. But of course, as the company devalued, the value, they had to issue infinite number of shares of Enron stock until it was absolutely worth nothing. It was all watered, watered stock scam. But the big problem, everyone's crying about the stockholders. And I... And when we talk about stockholders who are the workers who have their entire pensions locked up in this and public pensions locked up in this, like the Florida pension system, which uh, ended up going deep into Enron. Um, New York. Yeah, all that I'm, I'm very concerned about. But what I'm not – most of the stockholders were not uh, – your average stockholder was not crying when the stock was shooting up through the roof 80 100%. There were real other victims. In California, Enron – was basically mangling, manipulating, monopolizing, cornering the power market with about six other companies that they were playing games with. And uh, I've been looking at the specifics of this. Let me just give you an example, if I can. Um, Enron one day sold 500 megawatts of power into California over a 15-megawatt power line. Now, what that means is that they took all... It's like taking you know, 50 gallons of milk and trying to pour it into a two-gallon container... If they actually sold that power, it would have vaporized the line. Of course, they couldn't, so Los Angeles was about to be blacked out, causing panic because on the other side of the line, they had to buy the power. So the price of the power in California within one hour shot up several thousand percent with Mm. the result that Enron and other companies were able then to sell the the power from other sources in at this massive price. In other words, they knew that they were about to jerk the market upward, and they did it a day in – and day out, day after day, um, they, they themselves called it gaming, and it, they used tricks called stacking, cramming, false scheduling. And we don't have to go into how it was done, but it was basically a fixed casino. And out of that, um, we calculate, the systems operators calculate minimum $9 billion, up to $20 billion of, of money taken out of California electricity customers' pockets due purely to manipulations, gaming, and uh, cornering the market. What's the criminality here? Well, if they conspired to do that, that could be, could possibly be criminal. One of the big problems we have is that this is, if it were really criminal, and I could say absolutely it's criminal, I'd say, you know, I'm not worried about the system because we got laws and they broke them, we'll get them, we put them in jail, there's mm-hmm. the bad apple, goodbye. The big problem is, is that we deregulated the system. In other words, there's been this complete bonkers, mad deregulation mania in which we've removed all the controls. We, re- we had a law called the Public Utilities Holding Company Act, which came in under Franklin Roosevelt. That's when we also had power pirates controlling the country at the beginning of the Depression. He, he said, no more of this. When Bush deregulated and, and Clinton nodded his head and went along, uh, but Daddy Bush, we ended up with eliminating that law and its controls. So that, there used to be something called a uniform system of accounts, which is how you keep your account records. That went out the window. Pricing controls went out the window. So you had these phony markets in electricity. And we even had under the law rule that these guys could not make political contributions. People haven't noticed that. So they deregulated the market price of electricity. They deregulated the accounting. And they deregulated... Uh, Political donations basically created a market in politicians where they could trade politicians. And, and this system was brought from Britain under Margaret Thatcher and brought to India, Argentina, other places worldwide. And, and 
and that's what they've been doing. The problem is, is that with, because there's no rules there, what rules can you say they broke? So we now have to go to, I've been in, done a lot of racketeering cases for government as an investigator, and now you have to go into conspiracy on the market, harder stuff to do. This should not have happened because it was deregulated. And now we are also Arthur Anderson, and I'm going to add in one other name. Here's a scoop for Amy Goodman. PricewaterhouseCoopers is involved here, too. In what way? No one was really noticing, but you have these offshore corporations, these, these uh, fuzzball entities, these complete fake jobs that were set up. The supposed independent owners had to have their own auditor, not Arthur Anderson. And PricewaterhouseCoopers was used. And Sharon Watkins wrote the smoking gun letter that really nailed Lay and the rest of the gangsters. Um, Explain who she was. Uh, Sharon Watkins was a, was a um, mid-level executive, upper mid-level executive, who was putting on paper, hey, it looks like we're criminals, and here's why people will think we're criminals. I think she knew exactly what she was doing, and she named, and she went through some of the steps that they were doing and named people like Cliff Baxter, made sure that Lay had that letter on his desk so he couldn't say he didn't know. But she mentions also Price Waterhouse Coopers, who've been up to their knickers in this story, and because they signed off on clearly on deals that, that just uh, clearly couldn't be justified. We're talking to Greg Palast, who is an investigative reporter with BBC TV, has written books and uh, articles on Enron, but feels like a journalist in exile. Why? Well, look, I've been reporting on Enron grabbing nations and governments and, its, and seizing power markets for years. Um, it was the front page news in Britain in 1998. I won the equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize for that on seizing the government through its lobbying and with other American corporate buddies. Um, the theft of the election in Florida was covered on the top of the BBC Nightly News. I did that report with and the t- front page of The Guardian, which I also write for. Um, why isn't this news in the U.S.? I can't get this news into the mainstream American press. I mean, I have beat my head against the wall trying to get back to America. My kids have British accents. I want to come home, you know, but I can't report the story. I'm happy to be on on democracy now. This is like Radio Free America here, you know, but, um, you know, I really should be on, uh, you know, taking these stories to the national news here. Before we talk about the theft of the election uh, in Florida, I wanted to go back to Enron and the kind of stories you were doing long before uh, it all, long before Enron collapsed, because it wasn't the newspapers that exposed Enron. Enron collapsed, and now the reporting is being done. Yeah, and they're all saying, oh my gosh, you know, like, oh, oh," um, you know, uh, they're all surprised. Though I'm not, it's hard to understand why journalists were surprised given the amount of money journalists were taking, including, I'm I'm ashamed to say Paul Krugman, who's, you know, I was reading Paul Krugman's defense of energy deregulation. I'm thinking, my God, this is against everything he's ever said in his career, in his life as an economist. And now he's, he's flacking for this goofball, Reaganite, Thatcherite, phony idea that you can have markets and water and power and things like that. And, and then I find out he gets 50 grand from Enron. Now, I'm not saying it bought his ideas, but... For what? For, on deregulation, but what did he get uh, well, he got fifty grand for doing some study for him, or you know, writing, uh, giving some talks, or doing some study. Um, it's it just this is a, now he disclosed it. There are other journalists who aren't disclosing their payments or had not disclosed their payments from uh, Enron. Joe Connison was writing about that story, broke that story. Hmm. 
Enron, I don't take any money from Enron. Enron and Argentina. Enron and Argentina. You can't actually divide the Enron collapse from the collapse of Argentina. Um, Argentina was the poster child of globalization. Whenever you pointed to the IMF and World Bank and said, you have mangled these characters. You, you, in other words, Joe Stiglitz, when he was chief economist of the World Bank, told me he went to the leaders of the World Bank and the IMF and said, you know, every country we've touched, we've destroyed. Every time we make a suggestion what to do, and, he, and, and Stiglitz believed in this deregulation free market medicine that they were giving countries. He said, all the countries are collapsing. Why don't we study it? He said, we don't have to study it. We got one success story, Argentina. And here's Argentina on its back today. And part of the game was, after the military dictatorship was overthrown, was a deep privatization, or excuse me, privatization, where they sold off everything that wasn't nailed down that was owned by the government. State banks, uh, oil pipelines, the oil company, the water company, the electric companies. It was all sold off in the name of reform and the new world order. Well, who grabbed this stuff? Um, the oil, one of the gas pipelines, was grabbed by a company called Enron. And I'm chasing down a story right now, which uh, was first broken by David Korn, in which the public's works minister said in 1988 he got a call from George W. Bush a week after his daddy was elected president saying, you know, the new Bush administration really appreciate if you would give a pipeline to a company called Enron. And he is, this is a senator, very conservative. He knows the Bush family. He knows Neil Bush, who's heavily invested in Argentina. Enron also grabbed the water system of Buenos Aires and was just thrown out for corruption, which is hard to do. But what happened is that the country's assets basically dissipated. So when they sold off, for example, the bank stuff, all the money came out, and that's part of the story of the collapse of Argentina because um, they had no assets left. They lost their oil company, which could have provided capital. They lost their uh, – basically, you're paying your electric bill to U.S. corporations. Uh, so there was nothing left for the nation to own. We're talking to Greg Palast. Uh, he's author of The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. An investigative reporter exposes the truth about globalization, corporate cons, and high finance fraudsters. When you come back, we will talk more about Argentina. We're going to go to a music mix sent by a listener uh, from the wacky, funky political mix, Johnny Hahn singing Corporation Song, sent by Celia at RiseUp.net. Let's drink a toast to the pleasures of power and wealth True, we abuse it all, we'll never lose it Let's drink one more time to our health We're Exxon and Boeing and AT&T DuPont, Chevron and Shell Though enmity lingers and those who point fingers You know they can all go to hell The profits we rake in are ours for the taking The dollars pile higher and higher the world is our plaything, it's truly amazing We get all that we desire Though some have been boring, this profligate whoring We find it suits us fine For power in doses like lovely red roses Brings to our faces a shine We're talking to Greg Pallas, an investigative reporter for the BBC, BBC TV. Uh, in the newspaper on Monday, the New York Times, 
Um, they talked about Enron, saying if the committee report proves accurate, investigators into the company's collapse will seek to point, pinpoint whether the same kinds of fraudulent acts that were at the foundation of the savings and loan scandals of the late 1980s and early 1990s occurred at Enron, too. These include false valuation of assets, bogus deals between related parties, millions of dollars pocketed by participants along the way. And then you talked about Neil Bush, talking about his involvement with Enron in Argentina. We go back to Neil Bush and Silverado in Colorado, the savings and loan scandal. We hear very little about this brother. No kidding. Well, in fact, um, this week we've had the collapse of, of Global Crossing. Um, another gigantic, in fact, that would be the loudest crash you would have heard ever, except that, except for Enron kind of overwhelmed it. Well, no one has mentioned, I notice in, the, in those reports, that George Herbert Walker Bush, after he left the White House, was given $13 million in stock by Global Crossing for one speech. Now, the problem is, is what kind of atmosphere does that create for regulators? What is Global Crossing? Well, it's a company that, in fact, you've never heard of this multi-billion dollar company that just went bust and blew up. Um, but it is, they do international fiber optics, um, cable and, um, you know, once again, we used to regulate that stuff. You couldn't just, you know, literally sink billions of dollars into the ocean and have it disappear. Before you do things like that, you had to explain your accounting, justify it, and justify the sale of the stock. That used to be a rule. Once again, we've deregulated. We've gone completely bonkers. This could not have happened under the old systems. You know, we had rules and regulations. And i got to tell you, look, it comes – if we look at Enron as one bad apple, we've really missed it. There are more Enrons coming. What I'm worried about is the ones that don't collapse, that were able, didn't go so far that they can't unwind some of it and keep the ball rolling. Because remember, it's not a victimless crime here. It's not just stockholders. It's electricity payers in in California, water company customers in Argentina, uh, power company customers in uh, of Enron in India. I mean, it's it, it, there are real victims beyond the stockholders. Well, let's go back to Argentina. Um, you talk about Enron's involvement with the collapse of Ar- Argentina. Can you clarify it, and what does that have to do with the Bush administration? It has plenty. First of all, if in the sense that that the Bush administration, and then following up, by the way, with uh, unfortunately the Clinton administration, who sent down Mac McLarty, who was the chief of staff of Bill Clinton, who is deeply involved in pushing for privatization in his official capacity, and then became a, a key money-making consultant to corporations, buying up the companies that they forced these nations in Latin America to divest. So um, these guys go into office, force nations to privatize as a condition of getting loans from the IMF, set up consultancies, set up corporations, and go out and buy the stuff. Um, so that's how the game works. In Argentina, uh, in fact, I was just able, one thing I have been running reports on for the BBC and for The Guardian is I've been getting a stack of documents from inside the World Bank and inside the IMF, and I just got Jim Wilfinson's private memo on, on Argentina, his plan for Argentina. From, Jim Wilfinson being oh, the president yeah, Jim, of the World Bank. Thank you, the president of the World Bank, and his little memorandum on what they had to do. First of all, it was like weirdly delusional, the the, co- the country's in flames, and he's writing, it looks like things are going to improve now. We shouldn't change our strategy. But the conditions that they put in these documents, they actually call them conditionalities or triggers, to use their pleasant assassinating term, uh, triggers and conditionalities. They list uh, typically in these documents 111 of them for each country. 
are very specific, and they'll say, you must sell the water company, or you must give British Petroleum a, uh, a permit to build a, a pipeline. And then weird, horrible things like under something oddly called poverty reduction strategy in the Wolfenson memo, it had a 20% reduction in payments for the emergency jobs program so that you're only getting $200 Argentine dollars a month. And he said, cut that to 160. That was a condition of them getting loans from the IMF. You keep, you do two things. If you take away the money producing assets so that money leaves the country and you cut the budgets to pay for the interest on the borrowings uh, which the country needed. And you, and you keep cutting the budget. In fact, Wolfenson said he was so proud that the country had cut $3 billion out of its primary budget to pay foreign interest payments. You can't cut budgets, sell off your assets, sell off your oil company, for God's sake. They would be rolling in dough and, not, and survive in the long term. So they had a boom for two years, and then they, that's it. But back to Bush in Argentina, back George Bush. W. Bush George w. Bush with Enron. George W. Bush, according to Senator Rodolfo Tarragno, who was here, in fact, uh, in New York at the World Economic um, Conference, and I'll be meeting him in, in um, London, he has said that he took a call from George W. Bush one week after the U.S. presidential election. George W. told him that... You know, I'm the son of the incoming president. He was surprised because he knew Neil Bush, so he knew it wasn't Neil, and so he introduced, he was Neil's brother. And he said, I can't confuse Neil and George because I know Neil. And he said, and I can't forget the fact that the, that the guy had the same exact name as the man just elected president. And um, Tarragno speaks English perfectly, lived in England. And he said the Bush administration would very much appreciate your giving this pipeline from Chile to Argentina to Enron Corporation. And why would... Now, what was really awful about that is that he said he wasn't so much offended by the pitch. He's used to that. It's Argentina. He was used to the grease, you know, the the grease being uh, put in and the pressure. What offended him is that Enron was offering one-tenth of the price of its competitors and furthermore, their offer came in after the bids were closed. They showed up with a half sheet, half a page of explanation of how they were going to buy and develop this pipeline uh, versus the other companies. And he thought it was just outrageous that they would even ask with this price and this proposal. And what was even more outrageous, he said, is that after he left office and Carlos Menem came in, who's a golfing buddy of both George W. and George Herbert Walker Bush, and they golf all the time together, um, that um, a pipeline, in fact, was given to Enron at extraordinary, fa- extraordinarily favorable terms. And then they grabbed the, um, the water system Buenos Aires. Now, there was a, a beginning of an investigation by a prosecutor there into the story, but Menem used his power to uh, quash the investigation of, of the Bushes Enron and and Argentina. Ultimately, Argentina threw Enron out. Is that right? Well, not on the gas pipeline yet, but on the water. Um, I just received note from the unions down there. It was a tragic story. Enron and, and its partners had promised. They have a company called Azurex. They were trying to buy all the water systems of the planet. Um, and they had um, grabbed Argentina on the promise, on the capital, on the promise that they would put in money to extend the water system to all the people who didn't have water. Instead, they 
fired, I think, 40% of the workforce. Uh, don't hold me to that number. But needless to say, they, let, they drew out all the cash out of the system. I'm told that at least on the gas pipeline, maybe on the water pipeline, also the acid itself went into one of these funny disappearing offshore accounts. Hmm. So who knows where the asset lays at this moment. Ultimately, they were, um, they were told to get lost, I mean, which is hard to do. In our, it's quite amazing. I mean, there's an uprising now from the streets of Argentina, but uh, to get tossed out of Latin America for corruption really takes a job. And yet the mainstream press in this country has not reported on this until now. I haven't seen the mainstream press report on this country even about Argentina. I pick up the New York Times, and it's all about those who, you know, re- the word reform has been grabbed by... Um, by the, the ultra-right and the globalizers. You know, reform used to mean protecting people. Now reform and liberalization means, you know, uh, privatizing and ending union rights, et cetera. Um, yeah, you don't read, but you don't read the story. You don't read about, uh, I mean, there was a bit finally about Tarragno's accusation in the minor part of a story with, with this kind of back-of-the-hand denial by Bush. In fact, one of the things that we've seen is that Bush provided and... Um, um, I got a copy through the David Corn of the Nation, good guy, um, copy of Bush's diary. Bush said he hadn't met with Tarragno in Argentina because he showed that he was in Houston. You know, you, know, you know, on Wednesday, 2 p.m., you know, watch the tube, open a brewski type of thing. You know, I, here I was in Houston. But Tarragno never said he met with Bush. He said he got a call from Bush. You know, so it was this typical non-answer, and that was enough for the U.S. press. Greg Palast. Uh, he's author of The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. An investigative reporter exposes the truth about globalization, corporate cons, and high finance fraudsters. He is a BBC TV reporter and uh, has been voted Best Guerrilla Reporter of the Year by the BBC. Uh, Hardly known in the United States. You are listening to Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman as we continue on the issue of Argentina. A defiant Argentine government yesterday launched a last-ditch attempt to stave off complete financial collapse. Banks and currency exchanges remain closed in Argentina. The decision to partially unfreeze bank accounts has not silenced protests. In light of these protests, the embattled government instituted a six-month ban on further legal challenges to its economic plans. Over the weekend, the Argentine economy minister admitted that Latin America's second largest economy is broke. He announced an austerity budget and eased the unpopular deposit controls, which the Supreme Court ruled unconstitutional last week. Outraged Argentines have taken to the streets, occupied bank branches to protest against the restrictions, which the previous government introduced in early December to stave off a run on deposits. Banks will now be banned from selling dollars. The government will allow the peso to float freely against the dollar when the foreign exchanges reopen tomorrow after a two-day bank holiday to calm the markets. But with no faith in local currencies after decades of devaluations and inflation, locals have voted with their feet and lined up at banks to buy whatever dollars they can. The measures received backing from the World Bank yesterday, but the International Monetary Fund, which Buenos Aires is hoping will back the reforms with a fresh injection of cash, made no comment. 
We're going to go now to Rick Riley, uh, who is with Big Noise Films. He's just come from Argentina, is now in Porto Alegre, Brazil, for the World Social Forum. Rick, you were in the streets last week when thousands of people were protesting. Can you describe the scene? Last week, the week before the World Social Forum began, was the most massive uh, range of protests that I've ever seen anywhere. There were two massive mobilizations every day, um, every sector society going out and, and protesting and manifesting in their own way. Uh, the desocupados cutting roads outside of the city, the unemployed workers' unions going to shut down bridges and, and shut down the circulation of commerce. Um, middle class um, and bankers going out and you know striking in front of banks in the Supreme Court. And then it culminated in uh, on Friday with a massive national casarolazo, a national day of protest. Um, it, the first day of protest, actually, that was not spontaneous, but that was convened by um, a sort of a spontaneous organizing body that's been created in the city of Buenos Aires and around the country, uh, um, uh, an assembly of, of neighborhood councils that meet on street corners and planned a huge protest, and um, over you know, 100,000 people came out into the street in Buenos Aires, but not only in Buenos Aires, all around the country. Um, the, there's a... Another one of the most exciting things about it is that it also you're seeing the beginnings of uh, of connections across these movements, not just uh, multiple pro- separate protests, but um, on the Casarolazo, the National Day of Protest, uh, was the first day that the Desocupados came to march into uh, join the um, join the middle mainly middle class Casarolazo in the city, um, and then on Monday after there was repression. Um, on the night of the of the National Day of Protest, there was a march, a 40-kilometer march of unemployed workers into the city, uh, met where the middle class met them um, at the gates to the city with a, cook, a cooked breakfast for 3,000 people uh, and joined them on their march into the capital. Rick, we are showing video footage uh, that you have sent up via the Internet uh, for those listeners um, who are actually watching us on uh public access TV stations around the country and on Free Speech TV's channel 9415 on the DISH network. Um, That video footage, quite remarkable, that you took while you were there. Yes, the the tactics of the of the piqueteros or the unemployed workers are are really amazing. They um, entire families or thousands of families go out onto the roads and they and they set up um, instant barricades to block bridges and stop the circulation of commerce. The way that they say it is that you know they used to strike when they had factories that they were working in, but now that they don't have factories, they find themselves outside. The only way that they can cripple capital that is able to circulate around them is to cut the. Um, cut its routes of circulation. So they uh, they build burning barricades in the street, and it turns into a huge, you know, um, a huge day-long party and festival. But it's not. Um, I mean, you can feel the difference between it that and the protests that we've seen in the north. Um, I mean, although the tactics look similar on television, they uh, it's entire families out in the street. It's it, it, you know, several three generations of uh, you know children, um, grandparents, and kids who are uh, who are out there you know, manifesting with a history and a trajectory of struggle. Um, and then the second package of video is, uh, is from the National Day of Protest, where you can see in the pouring rain um, 80,000 to 100,000 people crammed in, cramming into the, uh, into the Plaza de Mayo um, with a, a massive, completely peaceful protest that ended with the police firing tear gas into the crowd and, and dispersing them. 
We're also joined on the telephone by Alejandro Bendaña, uh, who is well known uh, for uh, uh, being um, a uh, high-level Sandinista, was Secretary General and the Foreign Ministry of the former Sandinista government of Nicaragua, former Nicaraguan ambassador to the United Nations, currently president of the Center of International Studies in Managua, Nicaragua, author of a number of books and articles, most recently demobilization and reintegration in Central America. Welcome to Democracy Now! Hello, how are you? It's good to have you with us. Can you talk about the significance right now of what Argentina is going through if the country is about to collapse? What does it mean for the economy, the uh, economy minister, to say the country is broke? Well, what's broke is the model it's the model is bankrupt because, and it is the model has driven the country to bankruptcy. The IMF cannot continue to treat our countries as machines for exporting dollars, and this was exactly what the what was what was taking place. The dollars ran out after the Argentines not only had indebted themselves ridiculously, but went on to try to pay for the debt with. Massive privatizations, nothing left to privatize. The IMF was still not was still not uh, happy with that, and um, you had this you've had this massive hemorrhage, and it's come to a natural end. Of course, the bankers, private and public, including the IMF, served themselves well to the last dollars, and now that there's no more dollars, the, it's the, it is the savings of the Argentine people that are literally being transferred abroad to the coffers of the rich. Can you talk about the role of the United States, the IMF, and the World Bank in where Argentina is today? Well, there's not much difference between the three because the, the principal upholder, politically and militarily and ideologically, of this, this market fundamentalism is the United States government, the United States Treasury, and it has been dictating the calling all the shots at the IMF and the World Bank. At the more sympathetic hearing that would have, that could, Argentina could have received in a regional context has been, oh, has been totally and neutralized on account of United States control of these institutions. There is the, the World Bank might be looking at something, but nobody will move donors of other countries unless the IMF gives the green light. It gives the seal of good housekeeping, and it is still holding back. We're talking to Alejandro Bendaña, uh, major Sandinista within the government, uh, former Nicaraguan ambassador to the United Nations, speaking to us from Porto Alegre, Brazil, also on the line, Rick Rally of Big Noise Films just come up from... Um, from Argentina to the Porto Alegre Summit, which is ending as we speak. We'll be back in a minute.
Now You Know Better by MG Plus Four. Here on Democracy Now!, I'm Amy Goodman talking about the situation in Argentina. Our guest, Alejandro Bendaña, he is uh, president of the Center of International Studies in Managua, Nicaragua, speaking to us from Porto Alegre, as is Rick Rowley of Big Noise Films. Rick, you just came up from Argentina covering the protests and the speech in the streets. Uh, we've been showing your footage from the streets for those who can watch us on public access TV stations, but you're helping to set up the independent media center in Argentina. Can you describe that as it's so difficult to get honest coverage of the uh, anti-corporate globalization movements that we're seeing all over the world? Yeah, that is one of the most exciting things to me in, in Argentina right now. There is, um, you can feel, I mean, media is one of the biggest issues that people are trying to organize around. After almost every uh, major meeting that we have, people, um, people run to the local television stations to strike uh, and to picket uh, because they, you know, it, it is, they feel how important it is that images are not circulating of their struggle. So the day, um, about exactly two weeks ago, we had the first meeting uh, was called for a group. Um, it, it was convened of, of five different independent cinema groups and video groups in uh, Argentina. Over 120 videographers met um, and began to talk for the first time about um, about a collaborative project that could cover and circulate uh, images from the from the struggle around you know uh, to to be a sort of a bridge connecting. Uh, the struggle of people who are taking over factories of unemployed workers outside of the city and people in Buenos Aires. So we are now beginning to produce biweekly video uh, news reels that will be circulated on VHS all over the country. Can uh, you give the website? Uh, yes, the website is at, uh, argentina.indymedia, I-N-D-Y media dot org. And finally, Alejandro Bendaña, you are now in Porto Alegre, Brazil. The closing plenary is taking place as we speak. Can you talk about the connection between the protests we're seeing in Argentina and where you are, the World Social Forum, where the theme is Another World is Possible? Here in Porto Alegre, in solidarity with the people of Argentina and demanding the release of the prisoners that are, that are being held, what we have just finished convening as, uh, as Jubilee is the, is the People's International Tribunal on Debt. And this had been planned for over a year, but the, the situation in Argentina just gives highlight some of the issues posed by that tribunal, which is the absolute illegitimacy of the external debt, particularly as in the case of Argentina, much of that debt was incurred by the military dictatorship in connivance with the IMF and the U.S. Treasury, yet the Argentine people have been forced to pay it back one time. And again, if there is one demand in the international tribunal and on the streets of Buenos Aires, as you have probably seen from your clippings, is that to stop the payment of that debt and to punish all those who are corrupt for it. So people should be interested, your, your listeners and viewers, perhaps, in the final verdict that has come out determining and establishing the juridical, ethical, political, and environmental illegitimacy of the debt. And you can take a look at that at the Jubilee South uh, website, which is www.jubileesouthnet. 
And on that note, we're going to turn to our producer in uh, Porto Alegre, Deepa Fernandez, who is where the closing plenary is taking place. We are just about to go to some of the sounds of the last few days in Porto Alegre, Deepa. But can you describe the scene where you are? Hi, Amy. It's great to be with you. It's absolutely amazing here. I would like to take just one little minute to bring you all a slice of warmth and hope and, and just incredible feeling that everybody here surrounding us is there's a good at least 20,000 people in this final plenary. People are outside, they're singing, they're dancing, they're crying, they're hugging each other, they're patting each other on the back, congratulating them. You know, right beside me here, there's a, a puppet show going on where they've got this great wooden puppet of Bob Marley. There's every sort of flag that you can see, people from all over the world. I think the feeling really is that another world is possible, and and they they have a theme song for this conference, which has been Another World is Possible, and everybody, I think, knows the words to the song now. It's in Portuguese. All of us have learned them, and, and I can see it on everybody's lips as they play the song. So it's really been just a powerful gathering of people. I think all of us are, are going to come home with a feeling that another world really is possible and, and bring that back into our, our organizing and our work and our lives and our activism in the United States, or from really from wherever people are from. On that note, Deepa, we will play uh, some of the sounds of the last few days of speakers and participants in the World Social Forum, uh, the second annual meeting uh, taking place to counter the World Economic Forum that wrapped up yesterday in New York, where more than 2,000 of the captains of industry in the world today gathered at the Waldorf Astoria amidst thousands of people protesting outside. Deepa Fernandez, uh, producer with Democracy Now! in Porto Alegre, Rick Rowley, Big Noise Films, and Alejandra Bendania, um, president of the Center of International Studies in Managua, Nicaragua, also co-chair of the Ethics and Justice Committee of the International Campaign to Ban Landmines. As we turn now to, well, on Saturday night, it was Noam Chomsky uh, who spoke, and then we'll hear other people describing uh, the situation, not only in Porto Alegre, but around the issue of corporate globalization in the world today. Noam Chomsky. Uh, In 1989, U.S. intelligence warned the incoming government that uh, in conflict with much weaker enemies, those incidentally are the only enemies anyone contemplates fighting, anything else would be silly, Uh, in conflicts with, I'm quoting it now, in conflicts with much weaker enemies, uh, our victory must be decisive and rapid, Uh, anything else will be embarrassing and will cause us to lose popular support, uh, which is understood to be very thin. And the wars since that time have kept pretty much to that pattern, uh, and in the scale of protest and uh, dissent have steadily increased. That includes right now, uh, contrary to what's claimed by the movers and the shakers. So there have been changes of a mixed nature. Uh, When when pretexts vanish, new ones have to be concocted to control the great beast uh, while the traditional policies are uh, continued, uh, adapted to new circumstances. Uh, That was already becoming clear 20 years ago. It was hard not to recognize that the Soviet enemy uh, was facing serious internal problems 
and might not be a credible threat much longer. Uh, that's a good part of the reason why the Reagan administration uh, 20 years ago declared the war against terror would be the focus of U.S. foreign policy, particularly in Central America and the Middle East. Uh, they were, I'm quoting now, the main source of the plague spread by depraved opponents of civilization itself in a return to barbarism in the modern age. Actually, I'm quoting the administration moderate, uh, Secretary of State George Shultz. Another big name at the conference was Martin McQuan, who was the leader of the National Campaign for Dalit Human Rights, the Dalits being the lowest caste Hindus in India. The Dalits' case of extreme oppression made it onto the international radar screen at last year's UN World Conference Against Racism. Here, Martin McQuan explains how the conference affected his people. I think what we have seen is the, a very ma massive national debate came up for the first time in India. Huh? All papers, and secondly, some of the political parties, for example, the left parties, they never accepted that caste was a problem in Indian society. They said class. Yeah? It is these left parties which passed a resolution in the Politburo supporting the Dalit issue in the Durban conference. I think this was major realization. So, you see, I think we used Durban, we got a lot of space to highlight the Dalit issue. And we made it very clear that we are not interested in a resolution from the United Nations. What we need is a six-point program. We want implementation of land reforms. We want a comprehensive legislation on uh, deciding wages and working conditions for uh, agriculture laborers, including Dalits. We want uh, prohibition and eradication of the system of manual scavenging, which is the shame of the nation, and uh, rehabilitation of the people who are involved into it. The fourth is the primary education. Fifty percent of Dalit children today cannot complete primary education. The dropout ratio of the girl child is 64 percent in primary education. Hmm? And we are every, the, that right has to be made available to all the Dalit children within next decade. The fifth thing we are saying is ban on the violence. See, now is a whole uh, debate on terrorism, and we are saying that this be treated as an act of terrorism, where you're shooting people, you're murdering, you're looting them, raping them with military action, private militia. I think this is something which needs to be banned. And uh, <coughs> sixth, definitely thing is we are asking for uh, equal opportunity for the Dalit women, because within the Dalits also the women are again uh, discriminated, having lesser opportunities than the man, and therefore we cannot uh, think of an equalitarian society if we are not also sensitive about the same issue. Okay. Well, we're entering now the uh, youth camp at the World Social Forum in Porto Alegre in the Parque Armonia. Over 10,000 people registered to have uh, camping space, and many more have come. Uh, as you can see, there's uh, hundreds and hundreds of tents uh, scattered all around. Uh, and there's a lot of construction. They're building many different forms of shelter. Um, and there's a, there are forums going on in the park. There's concerts every night. There's many different centers or events and cultural activity. So are these folks a part of the bigger conference, or is it almost like they've created their own one out here? Yeah, it, it it does seem like that. It's connected, but uh, 
quite autonomous. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's you, many people don't even have to leave here. There's uh, events going on here all the time at the same time that there are events in the in the main conference center at the university. Um, they've, all, they've set up all kinds of living quarters. I mean, I see just endless amount of tents, but there's also shower facilities. And can you describe a bit of that? Yeah, the MST actually works with the um, with the youth who came here and helped them build their structures, taught them the the um, they're building techniques from uh, from land occupations, and so everyone builds their shelter in a in a different style. So you see some made with thatch roofs, some with uh, with plastic. There's on the other side of the park. There's uh, structures with this strange pink roofs, and uh, there's teepees, and of course there's hundreds of different colored tents and tarps here uh, under the trees and out in the open. And a bunch of Che t-shirts. More Che t-shirts than you'll ever see in your life. And I've noticed that most of the people from Argentina, the men try to shave like Che, or not shave. Like so Leila, tell me about tell me about this place where we're sitting right now. Yeah, it's the intergalactica space we have been building in the youth camp here in Porto Alegre with the help of the movement of Tintera, and we're trying to make it be a real space of. Um, you know, interconnection between groups and exhibitions of militant material and so on. And we also have many workshops down here. So can you tell me about some of the events that Intergalactica has held so far? Yeah, yesterday we had like a debate for an introduction for the project and so on. And then we had a very, very nice workshop on on the work and the unemployed people with the mainly the participation of the, uh, the of guys from Argentina who who were like uh, sharing their experiences on the streets and how when you don't have a place where you work you can organize um, by like we organize for the anti-globalization movement in somehow Leila, an activist at the World Social Forum Youth Camp in Porto Alegre, Brazil. And we're going to leave it there. You can go to our website for more information at www.democracynow.org. Democracy Now! produced by Chris Abrams, Miranda Kennedy, with help from Deepa Fernandez, Lizzie Ratner, and Jackie Suen. Anthony Sloan is our engineer and music maestro. And returning Democracy Now! producer Maria Cadion is here. She'll be at the Anthology Film Archives in New York City tonight at 7 at 2nd Avenue and 2nd Street to show a film about a man on death row in Texas, who we'll be speaking about as well. Thomas Miller L., the date for execution is set for February 21st. You can email us at mail at democracynow.org. That's mail at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! produced from the studios of Downtown Community Television. It's back. great to be back on WBAI and KPFK in Los Angeles and community radio stations around the country. In ex- uh, and I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening to another edition of Democracy Now! Back from Exile. Magnetic radiation, fraudulent assassins, mysterious murder, chemical terrorism, military targets, fatal crimes and danger, a freak accident, no known survivors, wild and woolly semi-automatic truck bomb, emergency anti-fatal shooting rampage, notorious negative police brutality, fear the hidden Nazis next door. Marxist rebels, serious murderer, accidents, problems, punitive damages, like that negative heart-wrenching controversy. Time for us to bug out.